0: The wealth gap in America creates any number of problems, but perhaps the most pressing is its expansion of poverty. When this poverty intersects with a broken criminal justice system, it becomes criminalized. The cycles of poverty and incarceration can span generations, and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Tony Messenger of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch has spent years covering the stories of the people affected. In his new book, Profit and Punishment, How America Criminalizes the Poor in the Name of Justice, he exposes the tragedy of modern-day debtors' prisons and how they destroy the lives of poor Americans swept up in a system designed to penalize the most impoverished. Probation is an alternative to incarceration that was generally supervised by state agencies or local law enforcement. But now, a number of states allow private companies to supervise probation, oftentimes for minor crimes and misdemeanors like petty theft or traffic offenses.
1: It actually costs more money for the state to imprison these people.
0: Because it costs $150 to keep an inmate in jail. If you don't have enough money to pay a fine immediately, tickets can wreck your life.
1: Denelli estimates that a thousand people every month are going to jail in Alabama because they cannot afford to pay a fine. Everyone thinks the debtor's prison is over. It's behind us. It isn't. My name is Tony Messenger, and I'm fighting the criminalization of poverty. Sorry, not Sorry.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Tony. You start your book with the story of Brooke Bergen. Can you tell us about Brooke and her experience?
1: So, Brooke is a woman that I first met when I started writing these columns about people in Missouri who were put in jail and then got out of jail and ended up going back in jail because they couldn't afford to pay their bill on a previous stay in jail. And Brooke was one of these women. And I came across her case because I asked some public defenders that I know for examples of people who owed the county a lot of money for their jail bill. And they sent me the case of Brooke, and she owed over $15,000. And her original charge was stealing an $8 tube of mascara from Walmart. And so here was this woman whose alleged crime was shoplifting less than $10. And she ended up doing more than a year in jail and owing the state $15,000 for that time in jail, basically rent, room and board for, for the time she was in jail. And she was threatened with more jail time month after month when the judge would make her come back and pay down her bill. And if she couldn't afford it, she was threatened with more jail time. And I'll just never forget the first day that we met, we met in a coffee shop near where she lives. And it was the day before she had one of these court dates where she had to explain to the judge, here's my pittance of $10, $100, whatever I can get to pay down my $15,000 jail bill, which I'm never going to be able to pay down and which you're going to continue to threaten me to go back to jail on. And she was scared to death. We just sat there and she told me, you know, a little bit of her story. And this poor woman was scared to death, not because she had committed another crime, but just because she was poor and the judge was threatening her to go back to jail if she didn't magically come up with $15,000.
0: As I'm listening to this story, I'm thinking that most people who are also listening, they'll hear this story and think that this has to be incredibly uncommon. So how many people are stuck in situations just like Brooks?
1: There are thousands and thousands of them, and it's every state in the nation. And it's all sorts of ways in which our criminal justice center criminalizes poverty. And there's a part in the book where I write about What happens to most of us, and I say most of us, I have been arrested before for forgetting to pay a a speeding ticket and having tags that were expired. And I tell the story of what happened when I got pulled over and I got pulled over and I had a warrant out for my arrest and I got handcuffed and taken to the police station and my picture taken. And I sat in a little room for a brief period of time and had to do my fingerprints, but I had 80 bucks cash in my wallet. And I'm a middle-class white guy. And so I just gave them that 80 bucks and bonded out and was able to go home and take care of my kids. And I didn't lose my car and I didn't lose my job and I didn't lose my kids. But what happens to a lot of poor people on minor charges like traffic offenses or assault or having been caught with a joint or stealing $8 worth of mascara, you get arrested and often, you end up in jail that day because you can't afford any amount of bail that they put on you. And then you're stuck in jail until you can meet your public defender. And often you're in an area in which the public defenders are unfunded or underfunded. And so it takes a while to meet your public defender. Eventually, you meet your public defender. Some, a lot of the people that I write about in the book who are charged with minor offenses spend at least 30 days in, in county lockup waiting to get through the system. And then a prosecutor comes to them and says, you know what, you don't need to be in jail anymore. You don't want to be here. How about you just plead guilty to this charge and we'll let you out with time served. And that sounds great. So that's what people do so that they can get out of jail and go back to their families. But then they get out of jail, at least in Missouri and in Oklahoma and South Carolina and lots of other places, and they get a bill for their time in jail. And they can't afford that. And they find out that they also now have to pay a private probation company to drug test them, even if their charge had nothing to do with drug testing. They have to go back to the judge every month and report on whether or not they can afford to pay their bill. And it creates this cycle that they simply can't get out of. And there are thousands and thousands of people all over the country who are stuck in this cycle in small towns and in big cities and they can't get out of it and it's simply because they're poor. I was on probation for a year, $50 a month. At the time, I didn't have anywhere to live. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a job. No, nothing. And the the terror of every every time it's, oh, I got to go in on a 15th. I've only got 20 bucks, you know? And then, of course, you'll starve yourself to come up to 50. and it's crazy.
0: I think one of the most really shocking statistics in your book, at least for me, is that Americans owe $50 billion in outstanding fines and court fees, and yet 80% of the people involved in the court system qualify for a public defender. And yet, when people are released from jail, it is often harder for them to find work. How are these people supposed to pay off their fines or find their way out of poverty?
1: Well, they can't. And that's what makes the system so backwards and upsetting and really damaging and broken to poor people. I mentioned a study in the book. uh, There was a study in New Mexico that looked at how much some jurisdictions, cities and counties primarily spend to try to collect the fines and fees that they issue in various criminal cases. And they spend more trying to collect that money. Than they actually bring in. So it's really bad government. It's inefficient government. And that's one of the reasons why the interesting thing about this topic is that of all the things that I write about, it is the most bipartisan topic. And I think people on the left and the right come to it in different ways. But some of the folks on the right, for instance, come to embrace this issue because they realize it's really bad government, whether they look at it as tyranny or it's just a bad spending of taxpayer dollars. Why should I spend $100 to collect $10 from a poor person that, frankly, didn't even have that $10? It just doesn't make any sense.
0: And you know what? I'm so confused as to the judges who are sentencing people to jail for not paying court fines or jail fees. Can you tell us a little bit about the judges?
1: Yeah. You know, I focus a lot in the book on the judges because I think a lot of us have a a mistaken view of the judge's role, and particularly in some of these small towns. A lot of the judges that I write about in this book are elected judges. And so you think about judges in a small town, who are the powerful people politically in a small town? There's the sheriff, there's the prosecutor, and there's the judge. And they all sometimes find themselves aligned. So what happens in a lot of places is when you have lawmakers, and I'll use Missouri as an example because it's so common here. You have lawmakers who are mostly Republicans who have signed the Grover Norquist pledge that says they're not going to raise taxes. So what do they do? They actually do raise taxes, but they call them fines and fees in the court system. And when they need money for something, they say, hey, let's charge $3 and add it to every speeding ticket and every criminal case. And so they do that. And every state has a massive list, if you look for it, of what all of these fines and and fees are. So if you get a $100 speeding ticket, you may end up actually paying three or $400 because of all these other fines and fees. And then the case gets before a judge, and the judge finds somebody guilty, and they just think that the fines and the fees are a part of it. And if the judge doesn't get his money or her money, they want their money, and they consider that the defendant hasn't actually fulfilled their obligation to the court yet. And so they threaten people with jail if they don't pay these fines or fees, even though the fines and fees have nothing to do in most cases with trying to stop them from reoffending. It's really just about raising money for all sorts of, of things that have nothing to do with the court system. And so these judges take it personally if you don't pay because they consider you, frankly, to be in contempt of court. And so despite the fact that you're poor, Despite the fact that most of these judges didn't actually go through the process of having a hearing to determine whether or not you had the ability to pay. They threatened people with jail and put them in jail because they can't pay their fines and fees.
0: The ACLU in New Hampshire has released a report showing the number of people that get imprisoned because they're poor and unable to pay for citations. So let's say they are guilty of a moving violation like speeding or or rolling through a stop sign. They'll get a ticket that could be worth hundreds of dollars and if they can't pay for it, they are unfortunately imprisoned as a result. Now the new report from the ACLU of New Hampshire revealed that in 2013 alone, Courts in New Hampshire sent defendants to jail in lieu of a fine in at least 289 cases.
1: And it just makes it worse because now you're in jail. You're going to lose your job. You might lose your driver's license. There's no way you're going to be able to make the money to pay the fines and the fees. And then you get more fines and fees heaped upon them because you get out of jail and they give you more bills.
0: It's like you say, it's just bad governing, but it's also it feels so ridiculous and how we've not figured a better way that also is more humane, because obviously we know that people of color are disproportionately incarcerated in America, and I'm assuming people of color are similarly affected by the cycle. Is that true?
1: Absolutely. In the places, in cities and counties, I have a chapter in which I write about Ferguson, Ferguson, the suburb just north of St. Louis, is the place where after 2014, when Michael Brown was shot, a lot of people started to learn for the first time of this idea that, wait a minute, four Black people are being put in jail because they can't afford fines and fees on traffic tickets and that sort of thing. There was a lot of reporting, national reporting, local reporting on that scheme happening in the municipal courts in and around Ferguson. And people started to understand, well, that doesn't make sense. They're only paying those fines and those fees to prop up the broken budgets of these municipalities. And that's when I started first understanding this issue. And so in the places like North St. Louis County, where the population is primarily people of color, Black and brown people are significantly more harmed by these schemes than white people. But in some of the rural spots that I've written about, particularly in rural Missouri, in rural Oklahoma, it's poor white people who are dealing with this scheme in the same sort of way. And so. It, it does depend on where you live, but statistically, nationally, it's definitely people of color who are the most affected by this criminalization of poverty. And some of it's bail. Some of it is the suspension of driver's licenses. But all of it works together. The fines, the fees the bail, the bills that people get for their time in jail.
0: Well, you mentioned suspension of driver's licenses, right? And this is another way that the right is trying to suppress the vote by trying to pass these laws that make it impossible to vote unless you have a driver's license. Can we all just agree at the insane amount of systemic racism that is going on here and how it all intersects?
1: The good news there is there's actually bipartisan legislation in the US Senate to try to change a lot of people on both the right and the left. Unfortunately, not in Florida, where the example that you're talking about, where folks who were disenfranchised when they went to jail on a felony conviction came out. Voters said, Hey, you know what? You people deserve the right to vote, got their right to vote back. And then the, the state's court said, no, you can't actually vote until you pay your fines and fees, which is just so absurd. But there is actually legislation making its way through Congress early on. So think about that. that. That happens in a lot of states in this country right now, where you have fines and fees that you owe the court, and you're behind, you can't afford it, you've already served your time, whatever. They send that fact that you haven't paid that bill to the Department of Revenue and the Department of Revenue suspends your driver's license. Theoretically, it's supposed to, to get your attention so you can pay the fines and fees, but you're poor. You can't pay the fines and fees. And so then you get your driver's license suspended. Now you can't go to work to make the money that they're trying to force you to raise to pay your fines and fees. It's a completely backward system that has the incentive in all the wrong places. And so a lot of states right now are trying to reverse that process. There are a lot of advocates trying to end the forced suspension of driver's licenses over the inability to pay fines and fees because it just doesn't make any sense.
0: It's called the Driving for Opportunity Act. Wicker and Coons celebrated committee passage, so this was on the 28th, of their Driving for Opportunity Act legislation, which would provide incentives to states that choose to end debt-based driver's license suspensions. It has been estimated that at least 11 million people nationwide have their driver's licenses suspended because they cannot pay fines or fees. Hi, my name is Celeste. I live in Rochester, New York, When I was 16, I got a couple of minor traffic tickets that because I was living on my own, I couldn't afford to pay. Okay, later, I'm 21 and pregnant with my daughter, driving to work and I get caught in a speed trap. I was pulled over and found out then that my driver's license was suspended. I owed over $1,000 off from these old tickets. I was arrested for driving on a suspended license and spent 15 days in jail, pregnant. I'm out now, but barely have enough money for rent and groceries, let alone traffic fines. And now I don't have a license either. Because I can't legally drive my daughter to school, I have to take her on the bus, then take the bus to work, then take the bus back to school to pick her up. Altogether, it's over three hours. The thing that's really fascinating about this issue, it's really created some unlikely uh, partnerships, right? The Koch brothers and the ACLU, Americans for Prosperity and Empower Missouri. How do you think and why do you think that came to be?
1: So uh, part of it is the the, the part that um, that that I want to believe it mostly is that people on both the left and the right care about civil rights. They sometimes get to why they care about civil rights and which civil rights they care about in a different way. But I think for different reasons and different ones get more attention on the left than the right. I think people all across the spectrum in this country care about civil rights. And when they're presented with a situation in which they see that people's rights are clearly being trampled upon, if they can do so outside of a partisan lens, then they can look at it and say, yeah, that just makes sense. That doesn't make sense. That person had to go back to jail because they couldn't afford their jail bill when they didn't commit another crime. That doesn't make any sense. And everybody looks at that and says, that's not real, is it? And I'm like, yeah, it's real. It happens all the time. And so they come to realize that, hey, this makes sense. One of the reasons that I think you have people on the right in particular coming to criminal justice reform issues is that some of the right people on the right have endorsed it. Sometimes Just simply having somebody in your particular political philosophy say, hey, this is a good idea, helps you. So, for example, and I write about this in the book, President Donald Trump, who I didn't agree with on almost anything, signed the First Step Act, which was a good piece of criminal justice legislation. And in doing so, he said to the right, hey, criminal justice reform is a good thing. Now, I don't believe President Trump actually cared about criminal justice reform or even particularly knew what he thought that the bill was doing as it relates to criminal justice reform. But he said, I endorse this. And so that mattered to some people on the right saying it's okay to care about this issue. So I write about in the book, the Koch brothers group, Americans for Prosperity, invited me to come speak at one of their chapters about this issue as i was writing columns about it before i decided to write a book and i talked to the the leader of this local chapter and he's like yeah people in our group they re- they really care about liberty and you're writing about these people's freedoms being taken away and i think they'll really understand it so i walk into this group in st charles a rural county uh, just west of of st louis and it's entirely republican And there are several people wearing MAGA hats, the red MAGA hats. And I'm just really uncomfortable because this is not my – these are not my people.
0: And also, I I think when you see those hats – it, you feel like maybe there could be some violence that's about to break out, right? Like you don't feel safe when you see those hats.
1: I see the red MAGA hat and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm walking into this. And I'm sitting there outside the room before I walk into the room. I describe this scene in the book. I'm sitting there and and it was the day that Nancy Pelosi was in the news because President Trump stopped her from making a trip that she was supposed to be making overseas. And they were all just... Happy about that. Oh, Trump showed Nancy Pelosi. And that's what they're talking about before I go in to walk into this group to talk. And they know I'm a Metro columnist for the St. Louis Post Dispatch. And frankly, a lot of the folks in that group tend to think the St. Louis Post Dispatch is a pink Okami rag. And so I'm not exactly the most comfortable going in to speak to this group. And I speak to a lot of groups, but They understood the issue in part because whether it was President Trump, whether it's the Koch brothers, whatever, somebody within the realm of their political philosophy had decided this is an important issue. And so they were open to listening to what I had to say. And that really did make a difference. It's why. On this particular issue, it's fascinating to me that, as I write in a chapter uh, about this issue, that both the ACLU and the Koch brothers have appeared together on panel discussions promoting the end of the criminalization of poverty as it relates to the manifestation of all of these fines and fees that we heap upon defendants in our court system. Both the left and the right completely see that this is a bad system, that we shouldn't be doing things this way.
0: The Senate overwhelmingly passed a criminal justice reform bill on Tuesday night, delivering a bipartisan win for President Trump. The First Step Act, as it is known, would change sentencing laws, establish more early release programs, and expand job training meant to reduce recidivism. The bill will now go back to the House for consideration, where it is expected to be approved.
1: And so that's a good sign. That, to me, points to some hope. I try to end the book on on a hopeful note that there are elements of legislation, things that we can do to end the next generation of Brooke Bergens and saying, if you commit a crime, you commit a crime. But we're not going to tether you to the courts for 10 years just because you're a poor person.
0: In the book, you share something, Mark Levin, a pretty right wing guy who was working at the Texas Policy Foundation at the time said that if the courts are used as a debt collection service and that drives law enforcement decisions, then it bastardizes the entire purpose of the judicial branch of government and puts public safety at risk. How does the criminalization of poverty drive law enforcement decisions?
1: There's an example that I write about that goes back to Ferguson, in which St. Louis County is made up of, at the time it was 90, I think we're down to 88 municipalities. And a lot of those municipalities in this one county all have their own police departments and their own municipal court system. And so what has happened in some of those police departments, I write about this particular little town in which a mayor sends a memo to this police department and says, hey, you know what? our ticket collections are down this month. If you guys don't pick it up and start arresting more people, we may not have enough money in the budget for all of the police officers that we employ. He's threatening police officers with using their power to raise money for the city. And that's what really happens in a lot of court systems it's not always the police officer in this situation who's the bad guy. It's the chief of police or the mayor who's enforcing it. And then, as you brought up earlier, wanting to focus on the judges, it's the judges who allow it to happen. I spent a lot of time in county courthouses watching these cases happen. And every judge in every case has an opportunity to say, you know what, you can't afford to To pay those fines and fees. My job is not to raise money for the county commissioner whose office is on the next floor or for the sheriff who's standing over there during this case. My job is to do justice. And, you know, I sent you to jail for 30 days. So be it. But you can't afford these fines and fees. They're gone. A good judge and lots of good judges out there do this, waive those fines and fees. But lots of judges don't do that. Because it's built into the system. And so they are being used in that quote. What Mark is talking about in terms of the bastardization of justice is the judges are allowing themselves to be used as debt collectors because they're the ones who are putting the threat of more jail time on these defendants and not because they have committed further crimes, but because the judge is trying to collect backdoor taxes from them. And that's really unjust.
0: I'm wondering how for-profit prisons and probation companies factor into this problem and the policies that
1: drive it. So the for-profit probation companies are really bad. And, And it's a little bit of a misnomer because they aren't even always dealing with people who are on probation. So Brooke Bergen, the woman that you mentioned, who's a key character in my book, in Missouri, in most rural counties, when you go before a judge and let's say you get arrested for your shoplifting, your $8 tuba mascara, and you're lucky enough to pay your bail and you get out of jail. And so now you're on pretrial release. You haven't yet pleaded guilty, but you're being supervised by a for-profit probation company, a private for-profit probation company. And the reason for that is Missouri, years ago, when they didn't have enough money in the state budget because they're a low-tax state and, and the lawmakers refused to raise taxes to pay for services or roads or anything else, they just cut that. And so all the counties hired these private companies that came up that were basically formed out of people who used to work for the state. So now Brooke is facing this shoplifting charge, and this private probation company is supervising her. She has to pay them a monthly fee she has to pay them for drug testing. She wasn't charged with a drug crime, but she has to pay them for drug testing. Keep in mind, Brooke Bergen was a drug addict. And she, like many of the people who grew up in mid-Missouri, had problems with opioids, problems with meth. Lots of poor people in these communities who end up involved in the criminal justice system happen to have addiction problems that they battle. And so she's not charged with a drug crime, but she has to be drug tested. That's the problem setting you up to fail. My probation officer wants me to pay almost $1,000 a month for my drug tests for my probation. That is more than my house, and I am currently on SSI, and I get government money, and I'm not allowed to have a job currently in my disability service. So how am I supposed to pay... A thousand dollars a month. That's the system setting you up to fail because she's going to fail. She's either going to miss a test or she's not going to call in because she knows she's high and she knows she's going to test dirty. And so that's exactly what happens. So the private probation company whose incentive is to make sure they have repeat business reports to the judge, Brooke didn't call in for her test today or Brooke's test failed or whatever the case is. And the judge orders her back to jail for 10 days or whatever as a probation violation. You know what happens when she goes back to jail for 10 days? That's 10 more days of $35 to $50 a day on a bill that gets added up. So now she hadn't even yet been convicted. And they're adding to her bill over and over again because the private probation company needs to get its cut.
0: You write about some of the things that these fines and fees are used for, and I think that's really important for you to explain to my listeners. What are these fines and fees used for?
1: So some of them just go into uh, general revenue, but lots of them go into pet projects of lawmakers. So one of the ones that I spend the most time on in the book is this $3 fee that was passed in Missouri that goes on to every criminal case to pay for rural sheriff's retirements. Sheriffs have the same sort of public retirement that other law enforcement folks and and government officials in the state of Missouri have. But because a lot of them are in counties that have low tax bases and they don't pay as much as say, a sheriff in a bigger city might get paid or a police chief in a bigger city might get paid. They went to their state lawmakers years ago and said, hey, you know what? We need some money to supplement our retirement. Lawmakers tried to pass that bill and couldn't get it through. Why? Because it costs a lot of money. And even though sheriffs are very popular, including among lawmakers, that's money that you might have to take from schoolchildren or something if, if you're going to really make the budget fit. So instead of adding money to the budget, they came up with this $3 fee on court cases. And they did it that way. That way they can claim they aren't raising taxes. And then everybody who's involved in the courts these days now has to pay this $3 fee after they're convicted to help some sheriff somewhere in another town that has nothing to do with their case pad his retirement. That's just one example. So, lots of different interest groups, and some of it's for good things. There's a brain injury fund in Missouri that gets added on to criminal cases.
0: But why are usually poor people convicted of crimes funding these initiatives instead of just state or local governments?
1: That's the key question. That's it right there, Alyssa. That's one of the key questions of this book. Why are we using an incredibly inefficient tax system that focuses on extracting money from poor people to fund important causes that ought to be funded by the general society through a tax base that gets spread out and everybody pays? The answer is we shouldn't be doing it this way. Almost every fine and fee that exists in the court system shouldn't exist. And to the extent that it should exist, there should still be a process and there is constitutionally a required process that a lot of judges skip. To make sure that if you're going to threaten somebody with jail over their inability to pay, you have a hearing that examines whether or not they have the ability to pay. That step gets skipped over and over again in the courts throughout this country. The
0: problem and some potential solutions exist in both the courthouse and in the elected governments of states where these debtors' prisons exist Can you just walk us through some of this conflict and how it currently stands?
1: So to me, the most immediate first, I I focus a lot on judges because I think judges ought to have the courage to do the right thing. And the first step to me to, to solve this problem is every judge in America, whether it's an elected judge or an appointed judge, should decide I'm not a tax collector and I'm going to have an ability to pay hearing in every case in which I'm threatening somebody with jail. And if they can't afford to pay the fines and fees, I'm waiving them, period. End of story. And then that solves the problem because then state lawmakers eventually get the point and they realize this is not a good way to raise money. This is not going to help us. And then the state lawmakers stop adding to it. But beyond the judge's, State legislatures are the other place in which actions can be taken to solve this problem. So you're seeing some movement in this country to reform the bail system.
0: Here's the problem with our cash bail system. The idea is that if you have money, you can buy your freedom. And if you don't, you can't, and you sit in jail. Two thirds of people who go to jail in this country live below the poverty line. Incarceration only perpetuates that inequity. The easiest way to think about the cash bail system is that it's criminalizing poverty.
1: So that bail is actually used not as a punitive matter to keep poor people in jail, but actually only used in the few cases in which it absolutely needs to be used because somebody's either a danger to society or or to make sure that they show up to their court case. That it starts with that. Then state legislatures need to do a better job of funding our public defender system so that the folks who end up before judges have adequate representation so that they have a judge who or a, an attorney who can stand up and say, wait a minute, judge, before you put this person in jail, you have to have an ability to pay hearing, and this person doesn't have the ability to pay. These people need advocates every step of the way to fight excessive bail to fight the fines and fees that are imposed upon them, et cetera. Then you get beyond that part of the system and you go to the state legislatures. And at some point they have to realize, look, we're just not going to use the courts as a backdoor tax. If we're going to be a low cost state, a low tax state that isn't going to raise money for anything, that's fine. I suppose if you want to live that way, you can live that way. But let's not then implement backdoor taxes through through fines and fees and call it something else. It's exactly what it is. So state legislatures can do their part by just stopping to add fines and fees to the system and reversing what they've already done. Every state has this huge list of fines and fees that they've added to the court system. They ought to erase them. They ought to just go get rid of all of them because none of them are serving a purpose to make the courts better and more just and to make the rest of us safe.
0: If there is movement, as it seems to be, and we have players across political spectrums that are behind reforming this, why isn't it fixed?
1: Because people get scared of... It's very easy to scare people regarding the criminal justice system. So everybody that I write about in the book is somebody who is in some way flawed. Many of them Broke The law, or at least were accused of breaking the law. And one of the reasons that books like this don't get written enough is that it's very easy for a lot of us to just say, well, you know, I'm not a lawbreaker. If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. And so that sort of thing, there's a lot of people that are willing to just brush that off, that are willing to just say, I don't care about these folks. And so that's part of it. We have to do a better job as a society of having empathy for those of us around us who make mistakes, who battle addiction, who end up dealing with the criminal justice system and need a little bit of help and can't afford the problems that have been heaped upon their lives. Part of it is just this is a really hard problem for people to understand because most of us haven't been through it. Many of us have gotten speeding tickets, and what have we done? We write a check. We write a check, we're done. Unless you are a black person who has been pulled over time and time again for minor things like not having a light bulb above your license plate or something like that, you don't understand the reality of the fact that happens to all sorts of people of color in this country, in, in every state. And so all of these things work together. When you look at the bail reform, movement for instance where it's been most successful in in California and New York as soon as one person commits a high profile crime who was not in jail on bail then there are massive headlines that are beyond the realm of context that make it harder to continue to push those reforms never mind the 99% of folks who got out on bail and are doing just fine let's focus on this one Big headline bail reform is bad. And so every time that the nation makes a step forward in criminal justice reform, another political cycle comes through and somebody finds the next Willie Horton and finds a way to make it harder for these reforms to continue. Most of the things I write about in my book as it relates to the criminalization of poverty, the massive increase of fines and fees since the last great recession. Most of them are just common sense when you really look at it. But you're talking about benefiting people who are poor and involved in the criminal justice world. And so therefore, there just isn't as much empathy.
0: We need to start talking about poverty as trauma. It absolutely is. And if you've grown up impoverished, you grew up in a childhood filled with poverty. And I think we are not going to have or be able to shed empathy and compassion on these situations until we start talking about poverty in this country as trauma. It just perpetuates the cycle, unfortunately. I want to know, though, and I want to leave my listeners with something hopeful. So please share with us what gives you hope.
1: What gives me hope are the incredible number of advocates who care about these issues. I wrote about a young public defender named Matthew Mueller who brought a case all the way to the Missouri Supreme Court and won his first case before the Missouri Supreme Court fighting for justice for poor people in Missouri who were being threatened with more jail time because they couldn't afford to pay for their previous stays in jail. And he won. And the Missouri Supreme Court and then the Missouri legislature also followed with legislation, passed a law that says you can't do this anymore. You can't threaten these people with more jail time just because they're poor. And so it was a baby step and there was progress. And every day there's some progress somewhere in a state legislature or in a state Supreme Court where there is a increased recognition that the idea of suspending somebody's driver's license because they can't afford to pay fines and fees is bad that the idea of putting somebody back in jail simply because they can't afford to pay their fines and fees is bad that putting poor people in jail because they can't afford their bail while wealthier people faced with the same charges are out free is not just, is not fair, is not a protection of civil rights. So every day I see something out there that that shows me that we're making baby steps. In fact, to some degree, as I've been writing this book, it's been crazy. I spend too much time on Twitter. And every time I see a little bit of progress in another state, I'm like, oh man, I should have had that in my book. Oh, I wish I would have had that. Oh, I'm going to have to write a follow-up now because there's more progress. This is great. And so I would get nervous about it, but it's also it's thrilling and it's exciting that there really is a lot of of progress made in this realm of recognizing that just extracting wealth from poor people and calling it criminal justice doesn't make any sense. But it's a long slog because the way the laws work, it's city by city, it's county by county, it's state by state. And that's why the federal legislation that we talked about with Senators Coons and Wicker is so important because anything that we can do at the federal level that gives incentives to the states to flip their system so that they are doing less to harm poor people in the name of justice moves in in, in a better direction. It bends the arc towards justice.
0: Tony Messenger, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: At the ACLU, as many of you know, we are the country and the world's largest public interest, legal, and advocacy organization. We have offices that serve the country and every state in the United States, as well as Puerto Rico. And we use as our tools litigation, advocacy, and organizing to make change that will realize the promises of our Constitution and federal laws. And two of those core promises are fairness in our court system and equal treatment of rich and poor, both of which are core principles violated by the problem of what we're talking about today, what are essentially modern-day debtors' prisons, the locking up of people, the deprivation of their liberty simply because they do not have money to pay courts. And concomitant with that and at the root of that is, of course, white supremacy and racism. The American dream is not to be stuck in a lifelong cycle of imprisonment and poverty. There is perhaps nothing that demonstrates the broken underside of capitalism like the tragedy of those people who are stuck paying for their own incarceration. The fact that anyone goes to jail for a year for stealing an $8 tube of lipstick in this country is sick and immoral. The fact that they can never escape This one mistake is criminal in itself. We urgently need reform of the criminal justice system. We need to make sure people are not sent to prison for crimes of poverty. And for those who do go to prison, that they can have a chance at a safe and stable life once they are released. This problem is only going to get worse as the rich get richer at the expense